Good morning, and uh, we are honored to have with us as our guest this morning, uh, Rabbi Rhoda Silverman from Temple Emanuel up in Reisterstown. Uh, she will explain to us what is going on with that opening music. We, this is the first guest we've ever had that comes with her own opening music. That, <clears throat> yeah, so you, when, when you talked about our text this morning, you, you broke this out. Yes. Right. Well, I introduced it to my congregation with because the opening words of the portion in Hebrew are very much a command. Shalach lecha, shalach lecha, send yourselves out on this mission. And of course, for me, the image is, as a 45-year-old American, Mission Impossible. Who's making, who's making the demand, and why are they so eager to follow? And for me, the, and from a Jewish perspective, there's a question as to who's really making the demand upon them. Is it really this anonymous, like we have the image of Mission Impossible? Of course, in Bible, it's God, not, uh, I don't know, if, I don't remember who it is in Mission Impossible. Yeah, who is it? Who's making Isn't I know, it like, anonymous? Is it, it's kind of like in Charlie's Angels where you yeah, never actually see Charlie. I think yeah. so. Yeah. We never actually see I would see never God, watch so that show, of course. Parallel. Um, yeah. But there are actually two textual traditions. One is, at Shalach Lecha numbers, it's a little unclear. We assume it's God sending. God says to Moses, send them forth. But in Deuteronomy, we have the same story. We always have a replay in Deuteronomy. And there it's very clear that the people are asking to be sent forth. And so when we try and figure out what's going on in the portion, and particularly from a Jewish perspective, we're always trying to understand what the punishment was at the end of the portion. So we always refer to it. What's the sin of the spies? What did they do wrong? And part of it comes down to who's even demanding the mission to begin with. Is it God or the people? Well, for the, for the, I know most everybody comes on Sunday having read the Torah portion for the week. But for those who didn't, can you give a quick summary of the, uh, of the story? Sure. Or for those who are just forgetful. Right. So um, it opens, send out for yourself these spies. And so leaders, and not just anybody, leaders of your tribes. So 12 men, Anashim, leaders of each of the tribes of Israel, are sent out to scout out the land of Canaan, this land that has been promised to the Israelites, a land of milk and honey. Go scout it out. See what's really there. Check it out. The 12 spies come back. Ten are completely daunted by that experience. Everything is so large there, even the produce. And there's an image. It's a wonderful image presented, the grapes are brought back and they had, you know, that the, if you've ever seen Israel's um, uh, marketing tools, their image for their ministry of tourism is two people holding a big bunch of grapes between them. Have you ever seen that? That's from this Torah portion. The grapes were so big in the land of Canaan that, even, that one person couldn't even hold it. The people were giants to us. We felt like grasshoppers. This was the nature of the report of the ten spies. There's no way we can accomplish the task that God wants of us. There's no way we can enter this land and be successful. 
Two of the 12, however, Caleb and Joshua, have a very different report coming back. Caleb says, yeah, there's going to be challenges. I'm kind of being a little glib. <laughs> um, it's going to be tough, but we can do this. We can succeed. And Joshua reminds the people, this is indeed a land of milk and honey. God has promised us and also reinforces the positive attitude. So that ultimately what happens in the beginning of the portion and the end is focused a, a great deal on God's wrath because God is angry that the 10 spies came back with negative reports and the community, of course, responds to the 10 spies, not to the two. And so then we see all this punishment and wrath. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a bit of punishment and wrath. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which uh, Mm -hmm. uh, falls on on everybody, right? It falls on the entire community. Because ultimately the community followed the 10. Right. Or at least that's the assumption. That's why we think there's uh, all that punishment. But, yeah, as typical in the Torah, there's quite a bit of wrath. Yeah, there's a lot of people getting smoked. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I, I mentioned to, to Rhoda beforehand, the, the last uh, guest we had, uh, Rabbi Andy Bush, was here uh, during uh, the uh, Torah portion from Leviticus, where we have a blasphemer stoned at the end of the portion. Here, uh, we have a guy carrying, st- gathering sticks on the Sabbath. So I think we, do we have a picture from, uh, I think we have a picture of that. From what it, yeah, um, there's the guy. Um, that was right before they caught him. Um, Stoned on the Sabbath. Um, so uh, this seems to be a theme with the reform rabbis showing up and, and people uh, getting stoned. Is, uh, is there any connection there? No. No? Okay. Um, what we would yeah. say is to remind everybody from a reform perspective in particular. Reform Judaism really looks at the Bible from a historical critical approach. So we would argue that in large part the Bible was written to encourage discipline. Mm-hmm. Those of us who are parents know this may not work. We've learned this. But what's the best way to encourage discipline? Severe beatings. Or at least scare the bejesus out of people. (laughs) Sorry. Bejesus is a Hebrew term, right? (laughs) (laughs) If you scare them, you threaten the smoking and the stoning, of course they're going to behave and say there's one God and we're going to believe in this God and we're going to behave. Right. Clearly. Well, tell us, to the, so you've talked about the difference between uh, or, or some of the distinctions of Reform Judaism. Uh, what, what's distinct about Temple Emmanuel? Uh, do my three temple members, sorry. Temple Emmanuel, number one, for Baltimore is small. We're a very small community relative to the other Reform and Conservative synagogues. Um, we also are very much committed, and I don't think this is unique for Reform Judaism, but Temple Emmanuel, I think, does it very well. We're very much committed to social action. Social justice is a mandate of Reform Judaism. In the 19th century, it was the early reformers that ultimately became the reform movement that said social justice trumps ritual. In other words, yes, we, we have Jewish law, and that's important, but if there's an ethical issue, the law can't trump the ethics. We value ethics and social action, even if it means we have to change the law, or even if it means we have to perhaps not observe that ritual because that's not useful anymore. I think Temple Emmanuel is a great place because they very much still look at those issues, study the law, understand what it is in its origins, but then are perfectly willing to say, that's no longer useful. It is more important that we're inclusive. It's more important that we follow rules of ethics and social mores. And a strong commitment to the arts as well. Yeah, Temple Emmanuel, that is unique to Temple Emmanuel. We very much are 
um, committed to the arts, and not just music, which has always been a part of Judaism, but we've, uh, Judaism was always afraid of the visual arts. In Jewish synagogues, although you don't have them here in many churches, you'll have pictures. We don't in synagogues. That's very foreign to synagogue life. Except of the people who gave a lot of money in the lobby. That's different, right? Yeah, well, perhaps. (laughs) Um, We don't have those at Temple of (laughs) the But we're, we, if you walk into Temple Emmanuel, you'll see pictures. We, we have an artist in residence. And, but again, the art is always for the sake of study, social values. Um, we, our artist in redis, residence brought us into a program where we made pottery bowls. And then the whole event surrounding the pottery bowls was a fundraiser that sent 100% of the proceeds to an organization in need. We co-sponsored it with that organization. Um, so very much that the art has a purpose, an agenda, worship, Torah, and acts of kindness. And, and that was your uh, entree into Temple Emmanuel in the first place, right? As the uh, cantor? I was yeah, the right. cantor before I was yeah, the rabbi. T- tell us the story, because yours is a little bit unusual, right? Yeah, mine's unusual. So I was a cantor. I was invested as a cantor from the Reform Movement in 1993, and I came to Baltimore to serve a sister congregation, Har Sinai Congregation, which at that time was down... Park Heights Avenue, if you know the dome building, it um, was most recently a Jewish day school. It's now being sold. Um, I left full-time work because I had, a, at the time, a one-year-old that was very demanding and a spouse that, whose job was not flexible. So I left my pulpit, and I worked kind of uh, just very part-time teaching in the community for less than a year. Temple Emmanuel found themselves in need of a cantor quite quickly. And so I started up with them. Uh, with Rabbi Meiri, who you're yes. very good friends yes, with. Yes, right, yeah. Um, and so some of you may know. I continued studying towards my doctorate in rabbinics. Um, I hope to finish by the end of this uh, school, the upcoming school year. Uh, Temple Emmanuel found itself in a place where they needed to look for a rabbi. Rabbi Meiri decided to leave. Uh, she is now in North Carolina doing beautifully. The congregation at the time when she was choosing to leave was very unstable and wasn't sure of where they were heading. And for them to enter formal rabbinic placement, to make a commitment to somebody, was not a realistic option at that moment. And since I was already doing the studying in rabbinics, uh, I finished my ordination. I took a detour from the doctorate, got my ordination, and came back to the doctorate. And then I became the sole spiritual leader of the congregation to help them through that transition with the idea that if that's successful, I'll stay. And if not, then they can go into rabbinic placement once they're in a stable place and know where they're going to be going. Yeah. And, and how long ago was that that you uh, became the spiritual leader? Um, uh, about 2008, Two, yeah, 2009, right, okay. something like that. Right. Some of you may remember uh, Rabbi Betsheva Meiri, uh, who's been a friend to New Hope mm-hmm. uh, from early on and to me personally. Uh, in fact, it, it, she's uh, partly responsible for my involvement with uh, the Institute for Christian Jewish Studies. She's the one who kind of invited me in the first place. In fact, uh, uh, Rhoda and I were, were both at a... Um, at a, a study session on uh, Tuesday this week for a project coming up. I mentioned this at the family meeting the other week uh, for Reclaiming the Center, which is a, uh, a, a basically an interfaith study series that's going on in the fall on Monday nights. Uh, Temple Emmanuel is sponsoring that. New Hope is sponsoring that as well. Uh, and and we'll, we'll be hearing more about this. But I also managed not to spill Diet Coke on most of the pamphlets for the Reclaiming the Center series uh, out on the information table, what, what was uh, what was your involvement with uh, reclaiming the center? Did they get you uh, hooked in early on that? Um, they tried, but um, 
being a doctoral student was being That's too busy. That's a good so excuse, I isn't it? I said, um, we'll jump in once it's set up. So we're participating <laughs> now, but we were not a pilot. We yeah. were invited, but it just I couldn't make the commitment. Right. No, I hear, yeah, I, I got roped into writing a couple things. but Very nice. Uh, early, well, I don't know why. You t <laughs> say, say that again after you read it. Yeah. Um, so I want to give time for you all to ask some questions, too, but let, let's get uh, back to the, the Torah portion. So when you presented this text, when you preached yeah. on this text to your, uh, or taught on it to your congregation, um, what, how, how did you handle it? Well, there are two, two ways I went into it. Um, Number one, to view that the, the sin, again, what's trying to define what's the sin of the spies, to understand it as it wasn't just about having a negative report. It was about as a leader, what do leaders do? Leaders represent the people. When leaders go out and, and have to do something, like get information and bring it back, what's the responsibility to the community in terms of how one brings back that information? As a leader, there's a right, one could argue a right and a wrong way, being that those are rigid categories. And I argued, and it happened to be a Sabbath where we were honoring our leadership, that leaders need to not necessarily get caught up in negativity and just report it back, that that information can become viral, and that that was the sin of the spies. They, they impulsively took their negativity, spread it around the community, and the community had no option but to be in utter despair, where a leader... Uh, could choose to use that information differently, could say, could create an objective report, give a balanced report, try and trust the other, in Judaism, trust that if God says we're going to get into this land, to trust that perhaps there's a possibility of optimism despite the challenges we see. So that was one way in the text, to understand the sin that it wasn't just about the negativity, but what, what they did with that negativity mm -hmm. in terms of inspiring people versus not inspiring people. And the second, which I spoke about Shabbat morning, is there's a word in uh, Hebrew that's vague. You can't tell in the translation. At the very beginning, it says, um, well, not at the very beginning. After the ten spies come back, they say, translated in the English, the people, everything there was stronger than us. What's translated as then us, though, is a Hebrew word that isn't quite so clearly than us. It's mimenu. And in Hebrew, that really is from linked with a masculine, singular, or plural pronoun. So very easily, Mimenu could be, they are stronger than him. The Talmud teaches us that then him, they might have been questioning whether the people were stronger than God, that it wasn't about the people being stronger than another group of people, but that even God wouldn't be able to conquer these. And where I spoke about that is, can we even doubt God? And, and should we even bother? It, like, does it matter if they're stronger than God? Because ultimately, we have, this might be something in front of us that we have to do. Like, how to translate that word and then how to separate the self from God in our ability to move forward. It might not be useful to get hung up on, on um, issues of God's power when we have to live our daily lives. And, and riotous applause at the end uh, of your sermon, oh, like I always have here. Of yeah, course, good. Absolutely. Let, well, let, let me with a little snoring in a percussive. See, that's why we have these uh, vintage eighteen seventy nine pews that seem to have been designed for hobbits. Uh, between that and the and the, the coffee, most folks stay awake. Um, let me give you all a, a, an opportunity to to ask uh, Rabbi Silverman some questions as well. I don't want to uh, monopolize the conversation here, Marty. Oh. Well, here, 
Yeah, let me give you a comparison. We're like yeah. grasshoppers in their sight. What? Let oh, the question, uh, Marty, uh, who lives right by Temple Emanuel, uh, said uh, he's surprised to hear that it's small because it, uh, Marty, small. Marty uh, feels like he's grasshoppers in its sight. Uh, our building is probably bigger than we need it to be, number one. But um, if you compare us to the other Reformed congregations and large conservative synagogues, there are a thousand members, twelve hundred. The um, the uh, there are three Reformed congregations: one which is well over a thousand, one which is probably nine hundred to a thousand families, and one which is about five hundred families to six hundred families, or two fifty. So, relative um, to those congregations, were the small reform option in town, and certainly Baltimore is very unusual that we have so many large Jewish congregations. Bethphila is I can't even imagine. I'm sure close to 2,000 member families, Chizik, Amuna, Bethel. Most cities have perhaps one very large and then some middle size and small. Baltimore seems a little skewed that we have these very large congregations, and then, right, the 250 is the small. And there's not a whole lot in between. And that's unusual for Baltimore. Mm -hmm. It's very, uh, But also is the large Orthodox community extremely unusual. Most cities do not have that, if you're familiar with that area of town. Right. And speaking of Beth to Philip, we actually are going to have Rabbi Wolberg here uh, in September. He's going to be coming. And then uh, next month, July uh, 24th, uh, Rabbi Steve Fink from one of the other Reformed congregations, one of the large ones that uh, uh, Rabbi Silverman mentioned, will be here uh, in, uh, in July. So, Ron. We have to pay extra for that, Ron. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in Judaism, we have two ordained clergy people. One is a cantor, one is a rabbi. Historically, the division of labor is the cantor is responsible for the execution of the liturgy. Liturgy in Jewish life, in fact, that's when I started to bend over to Jason uh, and talk, and I apologize that it was during where you were getting into your prayer, because I'd like to continue that conversation. In Judaism, prayer, there's a very clear structure of prayer. There's a liturgical order. In Hebrew, our prayer book is called Sidor, which literally means order. So there's, there's a very clear order that then at the end leaves time for more spontaneity. That order, there's always been a very clear way of praying that order. And so cantors are taught over a number of years, all cantorial programs now are five years, inclusive a year in Israel, how to communicate that liturgy in, in line with Jewish tradition. But it's a music, it's primarily musical, but also understanding the historical and rabbinic background to the liturgy. Because the liturgy in and of itself is a very canonized, uh, although not quite canonized, a very structured text. I, I hesitate to use the word canonized because it can evolve. And actually, that's the essence of my, if you really want to know, that's my do- doctoral dissertation, <laughs> is how Jewish liturgy does accommodate over time. Um, rabbis were always tasked with interpreting Torah, what we're doing up here, the task of explaining Torah. If you go into a traditional synagogue or a synagogue of the old world, it was the cantor in Hebrew, the chazan, who is responsible for 90% of the service, and then the rabbi is the one who interprets the law. The rabbi was also the one that interpreted the law in the community. So if somebody had a law about kashrut, keeping kosher, they would go to their rabbi and say, I'm not sure about this issue. Can you explain it to me? In the modern world where most Americans, even those who keep a large bulk of Jewish law, 
are less concerned with the detail of the law and don't use rabbis in that function in the way that originally rabbis were meant to be used. So rabbis and cantors have both become worship leaders primarily and also all the other clergy tasks, responding to the sick, those in need, Torah study, educational programs, religious school, and the such. They've become very parallel positions. Um, I don't know even what to sing. Um, I could, do you have a Hebrew Bible? I'll go I'll run and get one. I could chant a There's little somebody Torah. Somebody ask a quick question. Actually, I'll, go get, I'll go get my uh, Bible. Let me explain chanting Torah because in Judaism we don't just read it. We don't read it in English, number one. We read it in Hebrew. And the way the Hebrew is read, there are symbols that indicate how to chant it. And the chanting is actually grammar. So it's a fascinating way to study Torah. So that would be a wonderful way that I can share a little bit of my cantorial skill um, without becoming a diva for you. <laughs> how many uh, in, in America today, how many folks are well-versed in Hebrew and understand what the answer is? Um, no, I don't know. what. I have no idea what the right verb is. So... <laughs> I don't, I think it's a great verb. You know, in Hebrew it's chazan, so does that mean we zan? I don't know. Yeah, you'll, um, truthfully, I couldn't give you a percentage. And historically, it didn't um, actually matter because historically, the cantor, the role of the cantor was long before printed prayer books. And it, the, oh, perfect. And the role primarily, why a cantor developed was that the cantor had extraordinary memorization skills and could memorize the liturgy because people didn't have it in front of them. It was long before the printing press. And they could improvise on the prayers. And the congregation saying amen made it as if it, it was said by the whole congregation. So originally, and actually I, I tease about the diva, but cantors are stereotyped as divas. And in large part that is because originally cantors did sing it by themselves. It, they were the voice of the congregation, shliach tzibor. Literally, they were the voice of the congregation. All the congregation had to do was say amen, and it was like a stamp of approval. I agree, it's as if I said it. Now, that doesn't work in today's congregations. People want to participate. And the language is, you know, can be a challenge. But um, we try to teach all Jews. We, that's why we have Hebrew school, because we try to teach them Hebrew. Yes. Yeah, the newest prayer books actually have it in transliteration. Um, I'm going to find our Torah portion numbers. I think we're at 13. Um, well, that I, I seem to do everything a little bit unusually. Um, to get into Hebrew Union College for the Cantorial Program, you do need a background in music and Judaics. My background at the time, um, I'm um, proud to say I was a music school dropout, actually. Went for voice, didn't know what, a, what the heck I was going to do with it, because what do you do with a voice degree in opera? What do you do with it? You go to Europe. I didn't really want to go to Europe. So anyway, long story, I ended up in psychology. Took music and Judaics on the side and entered that way. But if you, most students either have a music degree with a Judaics minor to be a cantor or a Judaics with a music minor in a rabbinic, most rabbinic students, again, Judaics, either as a major or minor, and all kinds of other, you know, some come in with philosophy, some come in with history. Also, law is a very popular background for rabbis because interpreting law Jewishly is not so different from interpreting uh, other law. So here's how... Um, so I'm going to just do the opening chapters. So there's where the title of the portion comes. 
so I should, really should sing that more forceful. Shalach lecha anashim, vayaturu et eretz kenaan, asher aninotein livnei Yisrael, ish echad, ish echad lematehe avotav, tishlachu kol nasivahem, vayishlach otam moshe, mimibar paran, alpi Adonai, Kulam Anashim, Rashev and Israel, Hema. So that's that's how we Jews present Torah. She's going to ask me to do that on the spot. So I can do that with a couple of verses. What I do for the children is then I do that in English. So you can hear how the chanting is the grammar. Um, and in, in Judaism, we chant this, but everyone has the book so they can follow along in the English or, or they can, you know, not follow along. And then we discuss it after. So um, God spoke to Moses saying, that word saying is a word that in Hebrew is there, which we don't really need in English. We could just say God spoke to Moses. But in Hebrew, we have an extra saying, send forth men to scout out the land of Canaan that I gave to the Israelites. In Hebrew, that's literally the children of Israel, but what does that mean? Are we the ch- Am I the children of the Silvermans, or what, what, what are my parents' names? The Harrisons. I don't call myself the children of the Harrisons. I'm just the Harrisons. So again, we have to kind of, that's why it sounds awkward in English. To the Israelites, each one, each one, a chief of their ancestors, you shall send them all Heads of themselves, or heads of their own tribes. And so that's how we do that. Um, for, so so that it, you can hear how the music really furthers the, the text. That's great. They're never going to ask me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll teach you. Fairly, fairly safe bet there. Yes. There are symbols, which, um, you know, it would be a great adult ed. Yeah. There are symbols all over the text that's how, that are actually fixed. So the basis of the melody that I used is fixed um, because it's the grammar. That being said, there's always interpretation. So a cantor might emphasize it differently. And these, this, this way that I chanted it in terms of the grammatical, the pauses, not necessarily the musical uh, dynamics of it, but the pauses were put in place in the ninth century. They themselves were trying to write down what was an oral tradition. We don't really know what happened until the ninth century, which, considering the age of the text, is a long amount of of time. So ultimately, it's interpretation. Right. That was we we talked a couple weeks about how the text was fixed in that in that period. The the Masoretic text by the Masoretes. Um, Great. Uh, Other other questions? Yes, Darcy, and then Marlene. Let me give a little historical background to hopefully clarify that question. One, I just want to make a small correction that's very important to Reformed Jews. We are Reformed, not Reformed. Very important. Not Calvinist (laughs) at all. We we feel we're constantly responding. And so once you put that ED, we're stuck. 
So that's a very important, it seems like a small detail, but you'll sound very educated if you let people know that you know reform Jews. And there are plenty of Jews that call themselves reformed, so by the way, so go ahead and correct them. Are you implying <laughs> that, uh, that Darcy's not educated then if she's no, reformed? No, she is now. Okay, yes. okay, good. I'm in a Jewish stuff. I'm sure, right. you know. She's a lawyer. We give her a hard time. Um, so historically, Jews were not welcome. In, like in America, it's hard to imagine. We're just Jews are your neighbors. You're Christians. We're Jews, and we all abide by civil law. That wasn't the case. Before the modern period, Jews were, for a price, we were able to live peacefully within other people's communities. We were what was called chartered communities. Um, and in return, we were allowed to live by our own law, halakha, Jewish law. For Jews who abide, who are, who consider Jewish law still binding, what I would argue, or most Orthodox Jews, though Rabbi Wahlberg is a better person to talk about Orthodox Judaism, they still feel bound to that law and will abide by it as long as they don't break civil law. For them, they, that's still their primary vehicle or, or way of being. In the, in, at the time of the Enlightenment, which is when Reform Judaism rises, the idea was, well, no, we no longer we are now accepted by the community. And remind, also, I should remember, remind the Enlightenment is long before World War II. So there was no concept. You know, Jews were going to be welcome. This was uh, post-French Revolution, every man has rights, that whole feeling. We don't need to keep our laws so separate. So in a sense, civil law trumps Jewish law for Reform Judaism. So that's number one. In terms of how we approach the law, for some, most Reform Jews do not live their life according to Jewish law. It becomes a guide. Uh, for instance, kashrut is the most obvious example. Most Reformed Jews do not lead, keep kosher the way an Orthodox Jew would. Some might not eat shrimp and pork. Some might not mix meat and milk. Some might keep a kosher house but be more flexible out in the restaurant. But it's not really so much that, in other words, Jewish law becomes more flexible. It becomes more flexible and it no longer becomes the only way to live one's life because we now live in a community where there are other factors. Does that answer? Or yeah. And I would, I would argue you'd find both approaches within Reform Judaism. I think you would find there are those that would argue it's no longer needed. Whatever, whatever rational explanation there might have been in the ancient world, it's no longer relevant, so we can just toss it out. We don't feel bound by it. There are others that would say, and I'll give you an example from my own life. My mother, I grew up in a very kosher home, and my apologies, my congregants have heard this story many times. The neighborhood that I grew up in originally had two kosher butchers. My mother routinely got a, what was then a quarter cow delivered to the house at whatever, however often you needed a quarter cow. I was too young to really know that. Until one of the kosher butchers went out of business, and the one that was left, the one she used, business practices no longer were, were to her liking. Prices raised, she felt they weren't clean, she just, it, it was challenging her moral system, her ethical uh, place to continue to give business to that. Uh, butcher. The funny part of the story is she was a little nervous about how my father would react, so she bought her meat at the Acme and just rewrapped it and put it in the freezer <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> uh, neither one of them keep kosher, by the way, now. They come to Baltimore and get crabs. But, um, but so there, there's an instance where it was relevant until 
there was something that, for my mom, arguably, trumped the tradition. It became, un, you know, she couldn't understand, why should I do this if ethically they're taking advantage of me? We all saw this play out nationally in the food processing plant in, um, was it Iowa, a number of years ago. This challenged the reform movement particularly. I mean, if, if we're going to say that kashrut is this way to live our lives, then you can't have a processing plant that is not abiding by what we consider ethical laws, which includes civil law, which that processing plant was arguing they didn't have to abide by civil law because they abide by Jewish law. Reform movement will never, you know, we have to be ethical. And if it means dismissing a Jewish law, we will dismiss it. Well, there's a movement, especially within the conservative, the conservative movement, movement, right, to uh, like an, an ethical kashrut yes. certification. The conservative yeah. movement um, is, the joke is they're seven years behind the reform movement. <laughs> But where that joke comes from is they are more willing, they're more interested in struggling with the system of Jewish law, which has a system that you can't change the law without a process, where Reform Jews argue, well, individual autonomy. If I don't like a law, I may choose to dismiss it and be respectful of those who may not choose to dismiss it. In the conservative movement, there's a committee process that you can't change a law without going through a formal and that's where that joke of seven years comes. So they, in their struggling with kashrut, are trying to create a new label called eco-kashrut, basically, mm -hmm. which is getting the Jewish laws of kashrut to, to get the ethics and the Jewish in line, mm -hmm. which is very challenging, yeah. extremely challenging. Marlene? The question is, when were, when were women allowed to be cantors and then rabbis? In the reform movement, the first rabbi was ordained in, um, I believe it was 1972. Um, her name is Sally Priesen. Um, that being said, there were women that functioned as rabbis long before that. The first rabbi probably ordained anywhere was in Germany before World War II. Her history is lost because of the Holocaust, um, but she was ordained. And had the Holocaust not happened, we'd probably know her history. Uh, so the reform movement claims that it is the first to ordain a woman, but not exactly. Again, it did happen in Germany. Um, the first cantor was a year or two later, um, later partly because there's a, there's a piece of Jewish law that says, um, it's a very troubling piece of Jewish law that says a woman's voice shouldn't be heard by, during prayer. It's called kolisha, and that's why in Orthodox synagogues they separate men and women. So there became kind of this legal hurdle for women until the reform movement was really ready to uh, make egalitarianism trump that. So it was in the mid-70s. The conservative movement followed, um, I believe, in the um, mid-80s. About Yeah, again, yeah. about a decade later, seven yeah, to ten go. years later. It was in the yeah. 80s. Well, uh, and I'm, the Orthodox movement has not yet, although they have granted what... They're starting this granting of rabbah title to some women, but um, they're basically educators. They're not allowed... Mm -hmm. I don't think they're pulpit rabbis. Right. Um, I will take the privilege of uh, asking the last question. I'll ask you the same question I asked you in Jerusalem. Uh, Rhoda and I were on the uh, MCI, Maryland Cl Clergy Initiative, trip in, in November uh, to Jerusalem mm -hmm. that was sponsored by the uh, ICJS and the Baltimore Jewish Council. Um, and, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Temple Emanuel is going in July next year? June. June, sorry, June. June. We're, uh, we're We're putting together a trip in January of 2013. Um, uh, and uh, the the uh, the question that was very much on my mind the first day we were in Jerusalem was what is it with you people and going up all the time? Yeah. 
Yeah, because I was asking as we were ascending into the Jewish quarter, uh, me with a, a full cast uh, on my one leg, uh, slowly climbing up. Uh, but can you explain uh, Aliyah? Aliyah. Um, the idea that we are always going up to Jerusalem is an always, you, you can't go down to Jerusalem. You have nope. to go up because that is where the temple, the Jerusalem temple resided in the ancient world. Well, if you read the Bible, and ancients probably believed that the God somewhat resided there. I mean, there's this understanding that that's the holiest place, so you aliyah. In synagogues, we make aliyah to the bima, and our bimas all face east towards Jerusalem, towards Israel. So it's just the idea that that's an elevated place. It, it's not really, a, there's not much more beyond that, other than that we're always pointing towards Jerusalem. Yeah. All right, well, thank you again, Rhoda uh, Silverman, for coming and joining us this morning. We'll express our appreciation. Thanks.